I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. On this episode of Newt's World, I recently came across Tim Kennedy's memoir, Scars and Stripes, an unapologetically American story of fighting the Taliban, UFC warriors, and myself. And I was intrigued. He's a decorated Green Beret sniper, a UFC headliner, and a self-described badass. But at its core, his memoir talks about the challenges and failures he's lived through and how those experiences shaped him into the man he is today, a devoted husband, father, and successful business owner. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Tim Kennedy. He is a Green Beret sniper, former MMA fighter, and he owns Apogee Cedar Park, a private school in Texas, and Sheepdog Response, a tactical training company. Jim, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I have to say first to our listeners, your book, Scars and Stripes, is number seven in the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list this week. That's an extraordinary achievement for a first-time author. Congratulations. Are you surprised by the reception the book has received? Yes. It really warmed my heart, I'm sure, as you know, putting your thoughts and your soul in black and white out for everyone to read and to be judged. It's a frightening thing. And my peers, my colleagues, they're not very kind sometimes. So I was a little fearful as to how people would receive what I thought and what I felt and what I experienced. I think one of the amazing things about Scars and Stripes is how candid and vivid you are in describing the experiences in your life. 
Would you share with our listeners the opening paragraph of your book? Actually, I have it right here. My name is Tim Kennedy, and I have a problem. I only feel alive when I'm about to die. I've killed evil men on multiple continents. I've fought in main event bouts in the UFC, served as a Green Beret, an EMT, a firefighter, and a cop. I've hunted Nazis, drug runners, Zarqawi, human traffickers, rhino poachers, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, wildebeest, elk, bears, and have the recipe for the perfect souffle. I fly helicopters, jump out of airplanes, dive mixed gas to the ocean depths, wrestle bulls with my bare hands, lift heavy weights, blow things up, and am proficient in just about every weapon system under the sun. I train warriors, own companies, serve my country, and I'm just getting warmed up. Yeah, but then it gets real. The next paragraph is, life hasn't been easy, and it has not been perfect. On the surface, I make a pretty good Rambo, but the truth is, for everything I've accomplished, I've screwed up a whole lot more. And I don't mean that in a self-serving way. When I say I've hit rock bottom, I need you to understand that I went for it so hard that if you were a car, I'd have no windows, no doors, or fenders, and I would be on fire at the bottom of a ravine. (laughs) That's a pretty wild description. But you go on and talk about the fact that life gets better if you only do a few things. And I think this is a really important, you have a list of seven that I think people are going to find fascinating. And can you just describe the seven things that you think really help make life get better? Yeah. So this book is so important right now. You know, we're editorializing and curating everything that we're doing. Instagram filters and TikTok and Snapchat and the news is curated to fit whatever agenda is appropriate and easy. But nobody's talking about failure or about struggle or about hard work. I say it took me a long time to figure these out. And one is take accountability for it. It's your fault. Failure is going to happen when it does. See number one. If you want to fail less, see number three through seven. So three is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The best time to start preparing is now. You cannot mass produce elite people. They need to be forged from hard experiences. If you want to be one of them, you need to seek these challenges consistently. Take care of yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. For some people, that means therapy. For some people, that means yoga and a cup of tea or fishing with the family. For me, that means embracing a constant struggle. Rejecting comfort makes me, well, comfortable. Surround yourself with good people striving to also improve themselves. Build goals and pursue them to the ends of the earth. Now, that's what you've learned as you've grown up and as you've reflected in life. But there's a story that at the age of 12, you and your brother and friends went out to find a guy who'd escaped a mental institution, and you had sticks you sharpened into a spear. Now, what were you guys planning on doing once you saw it? I mean, you're 12 years old. Yeah, I think we were going to be like the Lost Boys in Neverland. You know, we we're going to surround him. We we're going to poke him, and he's going to lay down and put his hands behind his back, and we'd call the police who would come in, and we would be the heroes. That didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, did you actually ever find him? We did, yes, sir. And we found him. He was munching on a bunch of marijuana plants in the bottom of a creek bed in Atascadero, California. We literally came across him down in the creek bed. And when he came up, he had been eating these edibles, I'm assuming for two days now. And with pee running down my leg, I was so scared, I couldn't even scream. 
And we all just took off running, throwing everything we could up in the air as we ran from this mental health escapee that was high as a kite. That's wild. Was he physically a lot bigger than you guys? Yeah, he was a grown man. I think he was in his early 40s. And I was 10. My brother was 12. Jordan Cunningham was 13. Andrew Hackelman was 13. You know, Jared, I think, was nine. We were just little children. That's wild. So there's another story that during a tropical storm as a kid, instead of hunkering down inside, back to the same team, you and your brothers and friends stole some inner tubes and rode down the river near your house. I mean, what did your parents think of these kind of antics? <laughs> I mean, this was in the 80s. The helicopter parent had yet been created. So there was times where they would push us out the back door and they would lock the door and we could come home when the sun set. It's way different now. But back then, there was a degree of feralness to children that grew up in the 80s. You know, I did not wear helmets when I rode bicycles. We did not wear elbow pads when we rode skateboards. And when I went to the tire store to steal inner tubes, it was not to replace my flat tires. It was to blow them up and then jump into the Salinas River during El Nino and see if we could not drown. And did you actually ride the water? We did. Yeah. So we jumped off a bridge that crossed Atascadero Creek. And where Atascadero Creek hit the Salinas River, we had dropped a rope across the river and as we went down these wild rapids, and I'm talking like the water was barely going underneath the bridge. The water had probably gone up another 20, 30 feet. And had we not caught that rope going down the river, we would have been swept to our death without a doubt. And that was our fail-safe backstop was a rope across the creek. Yeah, it brings back some memories. I used to teach environmental studies and I one time went to North Georgia and we were on a wild river. And my two daughters, who at that time were probably maybe 9 and 11, they both had on helmets and jackets. But other than that, they were floating down a wild river. And one of them actually got turned upside down. I was terrified that she was going to hit her head on a rock. And I'm trying to get to them. And, of course, the water is so powerful that it was really hard to get to them, even though it wasn't a gigantic river, but it was a genuine North Georgia mountain stream during the rainy season. And so you're sort of reminding me of that experience as we talk about this. But your father was an elite counter-narcotics officer who was up against Pablo Escobar, which is really something. And your family had a red phone in the closet where your entire family, including the 13-year-old you, had to answer to add to his cover identity. That must have been an amazing experience. It was surreal. And I never understood You know, now having a family of my own and being really careful about who sees them and where they see them. They're not at my businesses. They're very rarely in the public eye. They're not very frequently even on my social media. So I'm very careful about who sees them. But back then, you know, social media wasn't around. This was a different type of danger. The Colombian cartels were the most dangerous group on the planet. And this is like peak war on drugs, you know, when Reagan is trying to fight the cartels and Bush one is doing everything he can to prevent cocaine and meth and heroin from making it into the United States. And my dad's on the front lines of that. And that red phone, you know, we'd have scripts that were up on the wall. And it was really just to confirm his pattern of life. So if police officers work shifts, and if a drug dealer or a cartel member was going to call, and my dad's at work, and he calls the next day, and my dad's 
at work again. Well, now he knows that my dad is working a constant shift, which is not typical of a drug dealer. So the goal was just to try to disrupt the perceived pattern of life for my father and hopefully keep his cover a little bit more secure. You know, it's interesting. Years ago, I read Bowden's book, Killing Pablo, which is the whole hunt for Pablo Escobar, which is an astonishing story. And the degree to which he was able to hide in Medellin and really had large parts of the city that were protecting him. You're growing up in a family where your father's running a really big risk. Wildly dangerous. He, just like my grandpa and my uncles, they were part of a generation that knew justice and they knew what right and wrong was. And they would make sacrifices in an effort to, you know, for evil to conquer, it takes good men to do nothing. And my entire family subscribed to that. A grandpa that fought Nazis and uncles that fought communism in Vietnam and a dad that in the 80s, that was the face of evil was the drug cartels that were organized crime, human trafficking. All of it was connected to the drug cartels. So your dad watching you grow up decides as a teenager that you need to go into jujitsu. Why was that? Man, being that middle child, my big brother to this day is perfect. And I mean that endearingly, but also like annoyingly, you know, he like always did the right thing and he was always on time and the firstborn with the responsibility of being the firstborn. And then the secondborn, I had such a need to prove myself and I would do the craziest things just to prove that, no, no, I'm a young man. And those things were often reckless. So my dad very wisely early on recognized that I had a chip on my shoulder. When I was born, I was born with a heart murmur, a really bad one. And this ventricle defect, they wanted to do open heart surgery on me. They thought I was going to die. And I was just a small runt of a child. And all my friends were bigger and stronger. Even all my crib mates, you know, I started walking early, but I would take a few steps and I'd stop because I was tired and out of breath. And that added to the chip on my shoulder of wanting to prove that, no, I'm not little. No, I'm not weak. No, I'm not the middle child. You know, I'm not the little brother. And like that carried all the way into adolescence. And so what did you learn out of jujitsu? I learned how to control my temper. I learned how to channel rage. I learned a little bit of discipline and regiment. You know, I got really good at it really fast and I was just good at fighting. And I usually won. I almost always won. And there was one night where I got caught and I got submitted and I sit up and I think I'm 14 maybe. And I just yell a four letter word. My dad is sitting there. The entire dojo just goes quiet and they line up and my martial arts instructor berates me as to what went wrong. And a few moments before that, he cracked me in the face with a stick. And I looked over at my dad like, hey, are you going to come over here and address this? You know, like, and my dad just leaned back and he crossed his arms. He's like, no, you're the one that was out of control and you're the one that lost your temper. You deal with the consequences of it. That's just an antidotal example of how the shaping of a young man happens and how important it is to have those learning moments. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. As you're growing up, you want to become a policeman, but before then, because you're still too young, you first become EMT and then a fireman. Those are very life-saving and people-oriented professions. When I was five years old, going to North County Christian School, I wrote in my little journal a picture of a man in camouflage jumping out of an airplane wearing a martial art belt. And I said I wanted to be an army karate guy is what I wrote as a five-year-old. I had that protector, guardian, sheepdog thing inside of me. So by the time I got out of high school, I knew what I wanted to do. You know, when I started college, it was very specific purpose. I wanted to go work for the FBI. I wanted to be a protector. I wanted to not let evil happen. So firefighter, EMT, paramedic, police officer, those were all stepping stones and blocks on a pathway to ultimately being the best version of a protector that I could. When you finally got to join the police academy, I mean, how did you feel about that? I mean, I was proud to be there, but I was also an arrogant prick. I have so much respect for good police officers. They're educated, they're well-tempered, they're patient, they understand human nature but they will do violence on behalf of their community to try to protect their community. Those are very rare attributes to find in one person. Not all police officers have them, but some do. And I did not. I did not have temperance. I did not have grace. I did not have patience. I did not have any of the attributes that are great for a police officer to have. And it was a hard learning curve of not being an egotistical prick, you know, a little narcissist. I was the fastest. I was the strongest. I was the best fighter. I thought I was made to be a police officer. And very quickly, I learned just how far from reality that was. So you're becoming a police officer, but then the day after 
you visit the Army, Navy, and Marine recruiters to try to enlist. What drove you to move so quickly after 9-11? Justice, rage. Obviously, I wasn't alive on the day of infamy when we were attacked at Pearl Harbor. But this was my version of Pearl Harbor. You know, I remember sitting there watching live on a laptop in California, that second plane slam into those buildings. And I was frozen to that monitor, watching Americans look out and decide if they were going to jump to their death or they're going to burn alive. And I couldn't allow that to happen to another American. I couldn't sit there and be helpless. And helplessness is not something I can handle. Of all of my shortcomings, you know, not for one second can I sit back and let something happen like that. I was at the recruiter's office trying to figure out, you know, we didn't even know who the evil was. We hadn't put a name on it. We didn't know who had done it yet. That didn't come out for a few weeks. But whoever it was, you know, they needed retribution. We needed to have revenge. And in that process, when you do join up, I gather you had a unique opportunity that the Army saw you as somebody that could, in fact, be extraordinarily helpful. Explain the program that they drew you into. Normally, to go into special forces, you join the military, you spend four to seven years within your unit. You earn your blue cord as an infantryman. You go to airborne school, maybe go to ranger school, maybe at ranger regiment, but you learn how the military works. And then as you are becoming an NCO, you are eligible to go to special forces selection. And if you are selected, about eight out of a hundred men are selected. If you are one of those eight, then you get to come to special forces training. During the war, we were short on Green Berets. And they're the first ones in Afghanistan. They were the first ones really doing the heavy fighting in nearly every conflict. And so the army needed to find a way to get more Green Berets. They had tested a program in Vietnam called the 18 X-ray program, where they would take college-educated athletes and they would let them, instead of spending four to seven years in the army, they would let them come in and try to be selected. They were selected at a way lower rate, but the ones that were selected had a high chance of graduating from the Q course. And that was the 18 X-ray program. Within the regiment, it was called the SF Babies. So I was an SF baby. My dad was infantry for 27 years and went airborne actually after he was a grandfather. And they said to me one day, he found himself on this very fine airplane with a parachute on for the first time thinking to himself, you know, the plane is going to land. Why am I jumping out? <laughs> I spent time at Benning and elsewhere as a child. So from your standpoint, how tough was the training and what did you go through? I loved the training. I loved how tough it was. When I got there by 2003, 2004, the war is going. This is peak surge. Green Berets are dying. We have boots on the ground. And being a brand new Green Beret in the military and having my instructors, they are men that are just returning from war. And we're children. You know, they're looking at us young men, these 18 X-ray SF babies, not with disdain, but they don't want to be there. They want to be with their teams. They want to be overseas. They want to be part of the conflict. They want to be side by side with the brothers that they're so proud to wear the Green Beret to fight with. And not that they were taking it out on us. But they were going to ensure that whatever graduated from these courses were going to be the best product that they could possibly create. 
So the weak ones, they left. The hard ones, they made harder. And the smart ones, they made smarter. And then every once in a while, a guy like me just snuck through. And that's what was happening in peak war was they were trying to find the best and the brightest and make them better and brighter. So special forces training, that is separate from ranger school. It's a different track. Absolutely. But then you ultimately go to ranger school. Yes. There's ranger regiment, which is a light infantry special operations unit. And that's what's called the army rangers. And then the rest of the army, everybody can go to ranger school, which is a leadership school. But everybody in ranger regiment has to go to ranger school. I know you need a flow chart. <laughs> Completely separate from all of that are the Green Berets, which is the Army Special Forces. Army Special Forces can go to Ranger School, just like everybody else in the Army, because it's a great leadership school. So I'm a Green Beret that has a Ranger tab, but I was never an Army Ranger. I've always been a Green Beret. All right. And they're totally different in mission. So the Army Rangers, they are a direct action assault force. And then the Army Green Berets, Army Special Forces, we are unconventional, irregular warfare specialists. So we go behind enemy lines and we train in Afghanistan, for example. We are training and fighting alongside the Afghan Special Forces commandos. In Colombia, when we are fighting the FARC, we are working with the Colombian police and we're training the Colombian Special Forces to go and fight the cartel or the communist, socialist, anarchist. So in a sense, the Ranger Regiment, correct me if I get this wrong, but the Ranger Regiment is a shock force for a regular conventional mission. You're, in fact, much more often going to be moving quietly and carefully to a specific point to achieve a specific goal. That is a great summary of it. Yes, sir. I was very fortunate. Years ago, I got to spend an afternoon with the general who had founded the Green Berets and who at that point was in his late 90s. And he's a remarkable man. He had an amazing career in World War II and was the guy who convinced John F. Kennedy with great opposition from the regular army that we needed irregular forces. But now, so when you're out in the field and you're on your way to Iraq for your first combat deployment in 2006, I mean, how did it feel? What were you thinking at that point? Sink or swim? You know, it felt as if I was so over my head. I didn't deserve to be there. That's what I felt. You know, as I looked around to my left and to my right, they were seasoned combat veterans. They're experienced and hardened men. I felt like a child. There was no other place I wanted to be. I wanted to belong there so badly, you know, but I didn't. Not yet. So in that sense, that was one of the downsides of the 18 x-ray program because you don't have the five or six years of regular army to get acclimated before you become a Green Beret. You're going right into Green Beret. That's right. And statistically, we would die at about twice the death rate as a regular Green Beret. So even though they were putting more bodies in boots, those boots were going into coffins faster than anybody else in the Green Berets. Well, they always say I mean, it's the first couple combat events that are actually the most dangerous because you don't yet know how to stay down and how to make sure you're doing the right thing. But then that same year, you're on the mission that kills Zakawi, who at that time was the number two man on the most wanted list. I mean, did you go out on that mission knowing that Zarqawi was the target? Yes. That whole entire task force was built around tracking Zarqawi. The whole 
task force had the sole purpose of chopping off the head of the snake in Iraq. You know, if bin Laden is the leader of the radical terrorist organization, Zarqawi in Iraq is the leader of all resistance within Iraq. Effectively destroying the leader of that organization was going to create such chaos and opportunity for us to hopefully ultimately build stability within the region. Having been involved in that extraordinary mission, you had a chance then to meet with President Bush. I mean, that must have been quite a jump. It was wild. Once we knew that we had jackpot, once we knew that we had found the number two guy on the planet, the number one bad guy in all of Iraq, that night we figured out how many safe houses he had left because we've been hitting house after house after house. We got them down to a manageable number where we in one night between all of the special operations units on the ground could attack all of the houses all at one time. And that's what we did. And ultimately it drove him to one safe house where we dropped a big bomb on him. And there was one special operations guy that literally stood over his dying body with his foot on his chest as he took his last breaths of air as he succumbed to his wounds from the bomb. That night, it was wild. All cell phones, everything was black, no emails in, no emails out, the whole entire task force. And we knew that for us that weren't physically on the mission or weren't physically at that house because we were hitting other targets, we knew we got him. And then we find out the next morning that... President Bush is flying in to thank the task force personally. Because Zarqawi, he was not just the leader, he was also the face of the resistance in Iraq. He hung bodies from bridges, he burnt people alive, he always posed with American weapons that he had taken off dead soldiers. He was the face of it. And to know that he was gone was such a victory for the United States. And President Bush, there was no fanfare, there was no publicity. That was just President Bush as a man, as an American, flying to us to say thanks. It reminds me a little bit, you understand from Zarqawi's importance of what it meant when we were able to kill Soleimani, who had been the head of all of the Iranian terrorist operations for, I think, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, Soleimani, there's no doubt that Soleimani you know, took legs from my friends and killed countless of my colleagues. There's no doubt. So, you know, not many people really understand how long Soleimani had been impacting that entire region, both Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, Iran was both supporting and financing foreign fighters in the global war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. So after having been part of Killing Zarqawi, you go to Ranger School. How tough was Ranger School compared to your special forces training? It was a blast. It was easy. It's a school. It's a school that... They want you to make sure you understand how to be a leader and you cannot make a leader under perfect conditions. You know, you cannot make a leader in a vacuum. You have to, according to the army, you have to starve that leader. You have to make him sleep deprived. You have to put him into extraordinary circumstances. So then when you peel back a couple of layers of comfort, you see what a leader really is and who they really are as a person. Are they going to volunteer to stay up an extra hour to be a good guard? Are they going to give up a blanket, a meal? Are they going to sacrifice a couple extra calories of effort to carry the heavy weapon system for the rest of their team? Those are all questions that any normal, healthy, well-fed, rested person is going to make the right decision. But what are you going to do when you're tired? What are you going to do when you're cold? What are you going to do when you're hurting, your feet are rotten, you have crotch rot, you have who knows what kind of spider bite underneath your armpit? What are you going to do then when somebody asks you for help? 
And that's what ranger school is, and I loved it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So there's something almost ironic about the fact that a week after Ranger School, you get a call from the International Fight League about a fight in Atlanta. First of all, I have to say, I had no idea the Army would let you do this. But tell us a little bit about, I mean, you're just out of Ranger School, you've been in Iraq, and now you're getting this opportunity, which is different than most of us ever experience. I've had a blessed and wild life, but, you know, most people take months you know, sometimes a half a year to physically recover from ranger school. There's people that they don't have to take a PT test for as long as a year after graduating ranger school because your body gets so damaged because you you were put under such stress. I loved ranger school. I went into it with a different mentality and I graduated feeling good. And so when the phone rang and they asked if I would go and fight as a middleweight, the day that you graduate ranger school, all you do for the next month is eat. You just eat, 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 eat. So I had this fat, pudgy face. I had all of this like extra water weight. And when the phone rings, they're like, hey, can you make 205? Can you cut to 205 pounds to fight in this light heavyweight tournament? I was like, oh man, I don't know. (laughs) I have only been eating for the past six days. Ultimately, I talked myself into it and hopped on a plane. And the army didn't mind you doing this? So that's a tricky question. (laughs) I took my leave. So I put in like a request for a vacation, you know, PTO paid time off is called leave. 
So I put in that I was going to be traveling and I put the address of the city that I was going to be at and I had my team sergeant and my team leader sign it and it went to my company. So I was approved to travel and by no means did the army say I could go and do a professional fight on national television, but they did say that I was allowed to travel outside of Fort Bragg. So, okay. So you end up fighting. Did you win the first fight? The guy I fought, he was a famous black belt. You know, he came from a famous school and nobody had any idea who I was. So the betting lines, everybody thought this guy would just walk right through me. And I pummeled him like a starved pit bull that had just been locked in a cage for months on end. Like I just mauled him. He then spent a number of years juggling the army in this kind of fighting. How did you balance the two? Not well. I kept winning as I was fighting. I'm good at fighting. But I couldn't let either go because I love them both. You know, I love being a fighter. I love being a martial artist. It's who I've always been. But I finally found the community that I belonged in. You know, I found my peers. I found men that I aspired to be. I wanted to be like my team sergeants. I wanted to be like my company sergeant major. I wanted to be useful to my country. So I would fight then I would go to a school and then I would deploy and then I would fight and then I would go to a school then I would fight and then I'd deploy. So I did this merry-go-round of popping on different animals on the carousel and I'd have a wild ride for a minute and then I would hop on the next one. And it all worked until the card house came tumbling down. Weren't you at a disadvantage spending your time learning what the army needed and then being up against somebody who was full-time focused on being an MMA fighter? Wasn't there a certain disadvantage to you for that? Yeah, absolutely. And as talented of an athlete as I think I am, I lost razor close decisions for world titles. And I think the argument has been if you had just dedicated a little bit more of your time, you would have been the world champion time and time again. But I could never let go of that community that I loved to be part of. Now you've gone into a slightly different kind of world in that you're the owner of two businesses. The Apogee Cedar Park, which is a private school you have to tell us about, and then Sheepdog Response, which is a tactical training company. This is a totally different role for you to be the owner and the manager and to be doing something that I assume involves dramatically less violence. Oh, yeah. At the school, definitely. If there's any violence at the school, I've done my job horrifically wrong. And in light of recent school shootings, my school is pretty safe. I would think you'd be a really bad school for somebody to decide to pick on. Yeah, our school is definitely not the school to go to. So Sheepdog Response, Colonel Grossman wrote this book and he had a metaphor in it defining kind of three different categories of humans. One is the sheep. You know, it's just a regular everyday human that just goes about their life eating grass and making baby sheep. There's nothing wrong with being a sheep. They live blissfully ignorant of the dangers out in the world. And then you have the wolf which obviously is a predator. That predator looks for the weakest in the flock and goes and kills the weakest in the flock. Then you have the sheepdog. Genetically, the sheepdog is the most similar to the wolf, right? He's got canines. He knows how to hunt. He has all the predatory instincts. But the difference between him and the wolf is that he likes the sheep. You know, His job is to take care of it. My company, Sheepdog Response, we are almost all special operations instructors. We have Delta Force guys, Navy SEALs, Marine Recon, Naval Special Warfare, and we train American citizens, really anybody that believes in the tenets of being able to preserve and protect human life, 
we train and equip them how to do that. So it's school teachers, it's firefighters, it's police officers, it's military units. It's anybody that wants to protect human life. We want to make sure that they know how to do it. And that's what my company does. That's really amazing. That's remarkable. And can people find both Apogee Cedar Park and Sheepdog Response on the internet? Yes. We probably have the largest defensive tactics company in the world now. Sheepdog Response, you know, you can Google it and there we are in Apogee Cedar Park. You know, it's a private school in North Austin. That's terrific. Listen, Tim, I want to thank you for joining me. Absolutely fascinating. You've had already a remarkable life, and I think you probably have a lot more remarkable adventures ahead of you. We're going to have a link to your fantastic new memoir, Scars and Stripes, an unapologetically American story of fighting the Taliban, UFC warriors, and myself on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I certainly think everybody who's heard this is going to want to read it. And I just want to thank you for taking the time today to be with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for everything that you do, and I appreciate your time. Thank you to my guest, Tim Kennedy. You can get a link to buy his new book, Scars and Stripes, an unapologetically American story of fighting the Taliban, UFC warriors, and myself, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.